0: Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes, I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. Today, we are joined by Hermione Coburn, who is an earth and environmental scientist, teacher, communicator, TV and radio presenter, who is passionate about public engagement with science. Hermione is a geomorphologist by training and now is the scientific director at Edinburgh's Dynamic Earth. She's studied landscapes all over the world, including Africa and Antarctica, and has presented programmes for the BBC, including series like Coast, Rough Science, and radio documentaries on subjects ranging from lead pollution to lasers, and an award-winning series on bacteria. So we have a huge range of subjects to cover in a very short time. Hermione, welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes.
1: Oh, thank you, Bruce. It's an absolute pleasure to be here.
0: Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. So, Hermione, what's Dynamic Earth? That was in the introduction. And how has your uh, incredible career led you to being the lead of science at this, actually, I think, a unique institution? Because I think we only have one Dynamic Earth.
1: Uh, That's right, Bruce. Dynamic Earth, in a nutshell, it's Edinburgh's Science Centre. But as you say, if you look at science centres that are scattered across the UK, Dynamic Earth is a bit different in that we are entirely dedicated to telling people about the story of our planet and engaging people with environmental science. So that's what makes us a bit different we have a wonderful building just on the edge of hollywood park next to the scottish parliament and that was built the same time as the millennium dome we've got one of those crazy white tented roofs so if you've ever been to edinburgh you'll probably have a good recollection of that and at its heart dynamic earth is an educational charity and we've got a charitable mission to empower people with understanding and empathy for our planet. And my job as the scientific director is really to ensure that we are delivering that mission as best we can. Um, we've got lots of different programmes that go on at the centre and out across Scotland. We work with a lot of different public audiences, schools, community organisations, and we're trying to make sure that we're delivering good science engagement about the earth um, as accessibly and inclusively as far as we can. That's really what dynamic earth is all about. But you asked how I got the job, basically.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What on em- earth? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um it's a great job can i just say uh there's only been one person that's done it before me and that was a guy called stuart monroe who who was absolutely fantastic and um if you look all those things that you said that i'd done in my career i've either been studying the planet or telling people about it and that's what my job at dynamic earth is still about really it's working at that interface between research and different public audiences so All those things that I'd done in my career, when this job actually came up in the beginning of 2015, it was ideal. Um, So that's really how I walked into it. And, you know, and every day is different. It's about using the network that I've got across science, uh, you know, bringing scientists in, encouraging them to to, to meet different audiences and, and making sure, as I say, that all sorts of different groups have somewhere to come and some sort of experience to engage with that's going to, empower them with a bit more knowledge and empathy for our planet
0: and that i mean which is absolutely incredible and then you're you're sort of at this nexus between the science of the dynamic earth the the in the center and the actual planetary thing and the public and that engagement piece around it and did you find that that nexus is is sort of constant challenge because you know, the public got to go, oh my God, it's too complicated and too sciencey, therefore I'm going to switch off? Or are you sort of starting to make traction with getting the public to understand the science of climate change and how the planet works?
1: Well... It is is a challenge. That's what makes it interesting, I suppose. And and the key thing to remember, I suppose, that it's not one size does not fit all. You know, the, the point about public engagement and you doing this podcast will already know, you have to understand who the audience is. You have to understand who you're trying to engage and understand what they already know, what they already might be thinking. And so you have to tailor everything to make sure it's meaningful to that audience. And I'm sure we don't always get it right, but experience counts. Uh, Listening to your audience, evaluating what's going on really, really helps. And yeah, I, I like to think that we're offering something suitable for different groups of people. Progress and, and whether we're making progress, well, yes, I like to think so. Certainly some of the feedback we get seems to imply that. Um, we're still here after almost 25 years, you know, it's going well, but but the challenge remains to get people on board to, uh, you know, the science is moving quickly think back to when we studied geography together Bruce you know think what's happened with the climate crisis and our understanding of what we all need to do to create that sustainable future there is so much work to be done but I like to think that it is going in the right direction
0: and where in dynamic earth are the uh, where's the floor tiles the thinnest where are the where are the sort of fingerprints pressing in terms of which bit of the dynamic earth is the most visited the most popular
1: (laughs) well Most people say to me, uh, oh, you work at Dynamic Earth. Have you still got the iceberg? Uh, So in our permanent exhibition, we actually have what's essentially an inside out freezer. But don't tell anyone. It's this fantastic sort of art science installation that almost fills a room. And it's this giant, real living iceberg. And, um, you know, that's something that's been there from since 1999. And we'll never get rid of it. It's a wonderful kind of sensory experience for young and old and it just gets people like really excited so you know the iceberg is still there Bruce and we'll never get rid of it but uh, we are constantly trying to change and improve the experience you get when you come to the centre and of course making sure all our programmes are up to date with science as well so I like to think we keep moving as best we can
0: Excellent. And you're and you've I think you're just coming to the end or you've finished a big new project there called Discover the Deep. Is this um, Ah, what's this about?
1: Discover the Deep. Yes. Well, this is really the dynamic Earth way of telling the story of the ocean. So Discover the Deep, in essence, it's a national lottery heritage funded project thanks very much the lottery players because that's where the money comes from (laughs) Uh, they've given us half a million pounds and we've raised another half a million through various incredibly generous donors and we have developed uh, the, the central space in dynamic earth is now four new galleries dedicated to the story of our ocean and we've been running various engagement programs for two years that's what it actually is but the reason for discover the deep is Because we know now that the health of the ocean system, you know, the health of the oceans as an environment is in really steep decline. And there are many human impacts that are overlapping each other in the marine environment and particularly so in the deep ocean. But there's a wonderful element of deep ocean science and that it really all began in Edinburgh 150 years ago. So I always ask people this, Bruce. Have you heard of Charles Wyville Thompson and the Challenger Expedition?
0: No, <laughs>
1: ah, well, come to Dynamic Earth, and then you would find out. And I Excellent. think it, you know it's it's the it's the scientific heritage um, that's tied up in our understanding of the planet that we we incorporate into this project. But essentially, we're telling the story of Wavel Thompson, who was an Edinburgh scientist. He he looked into the deep ocean and realised that it was full of life and, and really important at a time when people assumed that the ocean was just infinitely large and and, and sort of not important. And fast forward 150 years, what we finding out is that the deep ocean is one of our least explored and least understood environments and yet it's absolutely critical to a sustainable future. The ocean plays such a key role in moderating climate and carbon and we're using that sort of historical hook to, to get people interested in the deep. We're looking at cold water coral reef ecosystems that are just off the coast of Scotland bringing people into this world and then we're showcasing contemporary marine science that's what discover the deep is really all about so we're trying to tell people that ocean science is relevant to them um, the ocean is something that we need to look after it's it's really an an ocean literacy project an ocean literacy is about an ocean literate person kind of is aware of their influence on the ocean and the influence of the ocean on them and and what what. What we need is a a sort of ocean literate society so that we can be making the right decisions when it comes to looking after the marine environment. And that's really what Discover the Deep has all been about.
0: And where do you think we went wrong? I mean, that sounds fantastic. And where do you think we went wrong? Because the British Isles, we are an ocean-faring nation and we've got this history of hundreds of years of going out into the ocean, yet we are largely illiterate about the ocean and, and what it can do for us. And do you think... Do you think we're going to learn fast because we're a a nation of uh, seafarers, or do you think we're never going to know? And you know, how have we how have we become so illiterate about the thing that we're surrounded in?
1: Well, one of the reasons why we did the project is when we asked people, what what are you interested in? People are interested in the ocean. You know, it's a fantastic, it's, but it is slightly mysterious. It's slightly distant. It's very difficult to to look under the surface of the sea and understand what's going on. So it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. And even with coastal communities, you know, they have a strong connection to the ocean, but it's not necessarily the ocean as a global system. So I think through no fault of our own, people have become disconnected from it, just as we have become as a society slightly disconnected from terrestrial and and, and nature on our doorstep. But I think what we've seen in Discover the Deep is that people are fascinated by it and are interested to learn. So I think what I would say is is more Discover the deeps. you know, more and more. Large-scale, properly done ocean literacy projects, I think, can can really have have a very big impact. So, yeah, I think each project of this kind is is going to help and uh, address that issue which you just identified.
0: And I suppose, yeah, I mean, when you look out to the sea, it's quite homogenous; it all it's the same. But actually, it's understanding what's down there below the ocean and was it bacteria that got you interested in the deep sea ocean i mean (laughs) how did you how did you how did you get interested in the in the ocean
1: they crop up in every story don't they you know it's probably in the deep ocean at hydrothermal vents where life actually first began uh you know i mean the ocean it doesn't get more fundamental than that and yet those environments are at risk potentially from deep sea mining operations. You know, we have to really understand the significance of these environments before we start destroying them. Um, so I can't say it was bacteria itself. We, we were really lucky at Dynamic Earth. About in 2015, just when I was starting, I was approached by the Changing Ocean Groups, the Changing Oceans Group at Edinburgh University to be a specialist outreach partner on a big European funded project called Atlas that was looking at deep water ecosystems in the North Atlantic. And that was a tremendous project to be involved in and really kind of career highlight stuff. I was by the end of that project, I was in Brussels presenting to the European policymakers. On equal footing with the scientists, you know, engagement was really a big part of that project and showing how they really do need to go hand in hand. Um, So it was really getting involved with Atlas, that big project, um, that led on to then discover the deep. So I suppose that's how it's all happened. I kind of feel I've become an honorary marine scientist. Honestly, I know more about the deep ocean than I do about <laughs> some terrestrial environments now.
0: and What's uh, what's the threats of the deep ocean then? Is it mining? Is it plastics in the ocean, which first of all gets sort of asked about a lot? Is it bottom trawling? Is it the fact that we've sort of just used the ocean as this sort of massive dumping ground from everything from waste, sewerage, munitions, nuclear waste. I mean, what's the what's the real threat to it?
1: Well, when we look at the deep ocean, I think you've touched on all of them. Uh, there's also drilling, you know, deep deep oil exploration. You know, when we look at what happened at the Deepwater Horizon disaster over in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, the impact that had on on these slow growing, very fragile, cold water deep environments. But they're playing a really important role in carbon management within the earth system so we've got the drilling we've got certainly bottom trawling we've got the potential threat of ocean deep ocean mining but we've also got ocean acidification This is the change in the chemistry of seawater that comes about as the ocean absorbs carbon from excess carbon from the atmosphere. We've also got deoxygenation and uh, rising temperatures. So what the ocean has been very good at is really buffering the effects of all the carbon that we've been putting into the atmosphere. And yet we've got all these other impacts that are kind of layered on top of each other. So if you talk to a marine scientist, they'll tell you that there are multiple threats and they overlap and that's what makes it kind of kind of so dangerous and really understanding the relative impact of those different threats and then how that might affect the the earth system or the climate system is really what they're spending their time doing and what we're trying to do in discover the deep is make people aware of those different threats and where our own activities and our own actions come into them and the things that are reversible the things that are easy to deal with the things that are gonna require careful consideration and policy in the future. But I think ocean acidification, again, it just probably feels a little bit remote to people. You can tell them about uh, the chemistry, but how do you make them actually care about the chemistry, you know? And I think that's where we're showing them these deep water environments and saying, look, you you don't need to go to Australia to see beautiful coral. You just go off the west coast of Scotland down into the dark, and and you wouldn't believe what's down there. And we still don't really know what's down there. That's another great thing about the deep ocean. Anywhere, anytime anyone goes, they find new stuff because it's really underexplored. So, I'm not sure where we got to on that question, Bruce. But <laughs> and it is interesting,
0: isn't it? Because we both did geography together at Edinburgh University, and I sort of went down. I, I went down the route of social science with my PhD, that wishy-washy world, and then you took a very scientific route with your geomorphology PhD and postdoctoral but we've sort of ended up in a similar place really which is engagement around you know the planet the earth and climate change and it's almost like we've got to the same conclusion which there seems to be a communication crisis as well as a sort of environmental crisis do you think we've got a a communicate is that the issue really because there's you know the science the science and the scientists will always Work and it's essential to understand things in more detail. But actually, we feel like how we communicate it and engage the public is 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 a long way behind.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably quite a, a good assessment. And certainly, the opportunity in in communication and engagement, you know, it's still all to play for. Not that the science is sorted. You know, we we need to carry on with the research, and and we need to. But but then our job is to translate that into well in your case unbelievable action and in my case not to oversimplify but to make it meaningful and to make it understandable and accessible so yes it is interesting to think how our career trajectories kind of went and yet we're all here contributing we're both here contributing in, in different ways to that sustainable future and I think with communication and engagement we just have to do it Cleverly and well, and fund it effectively. Now, I would never, I would, it would be dangerous ever to say, right, more money for engagement, less money for science. They they shouldn't be in competition, but they should work more effectively together. I think, as we saw, as I experienced in that sort of big um, European funded project, you know, we have to recognise that engaging the public and taking them along with the science is really important you've got science you've got policies you've got people and and they all need to be connected
0: absolutely and i i, I haven't had a chance to research this particular question but let's see where we get to but you know geography's history's got a long history it's steeped in sort of the climate and that's where a lot of people went to learn about the environment but also increasingly well very much there's science science degrees now and there's now specialist degrees and education programs but is there are the marketing communications degrees starting to get into environmental communications can you study environmental communications is that is that maybe where we want to put a bit more focus and as you said we don't want to move money from the science bucket into the communication bucket but we should have more potentially money going in there
1: yes you can do master's degrees in science communication and we certainly employ some people at dynamic earth that have that sort of background I mean I think it's not a it's not a requirement. But I would say, you know, you need a bit of expertise, but then you need a passion to share those stories, and 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 I think um, those kind of qualifications can probably help people get get a head start and 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 work through some things that perhaps are not very effective, and 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 come out sort of better understanding of what what can work and engagement and engagement as I say it's all about knowing who you're trying to engage <laughs> and that's, and that, that's really it so there you go.
0: <laughs> First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over 30,000 businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website which is thefirstmile.co.uk to get started today. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday. Right, I'm going to move on because we've mentioned geomorphology a few times, and I'm sure there's a few geeky geographers listening to it, and they'll be looking at their truncated spurs and various other sort of uh, wonderful um, landscape um, metaphors, probably the wrong thing to say. Anyway, what is geomorphology? Tell us all.
1: Uh, well, geomorphology, it's its a branch of the earth sciences. It's kind of physical geography. It is what it says, geomorph. You know, it's the shape of our planet. So it's really studying why the surface of the earth looks the way it does. That's geomorphology. So, I mean, my, my son, who's now 14, he's getting into a bit of coastal geomorphology, glacial geomorphology. You mentioned the truncated spur. You know, you can look out the window and see so much of the history of the earth written in the landscape whether it's the rocks themselves or or it's that shape and that's really what what geomorphology is it was the thing that I loved best about geography uh, <laughs> and uh, went on to do my PhD in it as you say and my PhD was all about sort of large-scale geomorphology um so really quite different from some of the things that I'm uh, working on engaging people with now but uh, geomorphology it's it's a really relevant and exciting um it's kind of tangible way to, to explore the earth and, and what it tells us about its history and arguably its future as well
0: and that was going to be my next part of the question really is what does it tell us about climate change because you obviously it's sort of a historical perspective on how the landscape has changed over time and does that help us understand how the climate has changed over over a longer time period
1: yes Absolutely. So in in glacial environments, for example, part of my research took me down to Antarctica. You know, you've got the whole ice sheet dynamics there and the history of the ice sheet dynamics written into the landscapes of Antarctica. So by studying them and understanding how the ice sheet has fluctuated in the past, we can look and to see how it might respond now, what's happening now and into the future. So there's a very strong link between say glaciology now, studying um, the cryosphere and, and, and what's happening on Greenland and Antarctica with actually glacial geomorphology. So yeah, there's a there's a lot there's a lot to be learnt. And I think that's what we have to try and show to young people. You, you know, there is a real connection. It isn't just lists of landforms, which some of us probably can all remember from school. There is actually a point to understanding how the Earth system behaves and our, our impact on it and how that's going to play out over the immediate short term future.
0: You've done an entire programme on the coast of the British Isles. And is that the area that's going to be impacted first, if we're looking at the British Isles with climate change, or is it going to be something else?
1: Well, sea level rise, which is uh, already happening to quite a significant extent and is going to be one of the major outcomes of climate change. You know, we've got warming of the ocean, so the water's expanding. We've also got uh, melting of ice, um, increasing the volume of of the ocean, how much water is in it. So, and it, and it's one of those things. I partly I feel that that's got to be one of our next big projects because <laughs> there is a huge amount of research there and, and coming over really into practical coastal management plans. And yet, you know, here here in Edinburgh, I think there are a lot of people who are probably blissfully unaware of what that will mean for the coastal areas of the city. And that is all about, re- that, is, that, is, that is geography. That's a bit of geomorphology in there. Um, it's a lot of sort of how, how the system works, but it's also how that's going to impact people, uh, all the ways in which we use the land and rely on the coast. So there's, there's a huge amount of work there. I'm not sure that's probably translating over into kind of public understanding and public experience, uh, unless you're directly affected by it. But it's going to have significant effects for sure.
0: Yeah. And that's part of the communication problem, isn't it? Getting people to understand that that even though they can't see it and hear it and touch it, then it could still have an impact if it's happening somewhere else in the world. And that's sort of why it's quite difficult to communicate. It's quite an abstract thing, the the planet. And then one of the things that definitely tells us about the past is uh, fossils. And you're a passionate fossil hunter. Did this passion come out of geomorphology, digging around on geography field trips, or was it somewhere else? <laughs> and what Fossils can definitely teach us things about the past. Can they, can they show us the way going into the future?
1: Well, oh, good question. I, I was very lucky, Bruce. I grew up in a nice little village in Sussex called Cookfield, and that was where some of the earliest um, discoveries and, uh, and real understanding of dinosaur fossils came from. That was where Gideon and Mary Mantell first found these fossilised bones and teeth and said, right, these are giant extinct reptiles from the past. And so as a child growing up, I felt very connected to dinosaur fossils. I may have one in my possession from Cookfield um, that used to belong to a neighbour of mine. So that was a great connection to fossils growing up. But it was actually in Antarctica, fossils really brought home more their environmental kind of significance. When I picked up a giant piece of fossilised wood on a glacial moraine in Antarctica, you know, a whole continent without a single tree on, here's a big chunk of fossilised wood, you know, the the earth changes enormously over geological timescales. And of course, fossils tell us about big extinction um, episodes in the past, rates of extinction in the past. And so understanding the history of life on earth through fossils, does really remind us and and inform us about what is happening now and we know that another result of the climate and wider biodiversity crisis is elevated rates of extinction and getting a handle on that and comparing it and understanding it to to other rates that have gone on in the past is another element of of what we're facing and whether we are entering another period of mass extinction of our own making um, you know is, is is a is a big area of research. And actually at Dynamic Earth, oh I forgot to say at Dynamic Earth we've got Planetarium. Um I'm in sales mode now, but our planetarium is wonderful and a new show that we've got in development is called Don't Panic. Um but actually it is at looking at extinction and and looking at our impact on biodiversity and and the fossil record tells us and really contextualizes a lot of that so again it's all relevant bruce (laughs) but fossils are a lot of fun
0: (laughs) and are you finding you've also got this interest in bacteria as well are you finding fossils of bacteria or was that a completely different area of sort of research because there's a growing i ask about bacteria because there's a growing interest in microbiology and the fact that there's just so many bacteria on Earth, they inhibit every part of Earth, our bodies, the deepest oceans, the coldest glaciers. How did you get into bacteria? And and is that helping us understand where we're heading?
1: Well, I wouldn't wouldn't say I'm in any way an expert on bacteria, but I did get to present five incredible programs called The Good, The Bad and The Ugly for Radio 4, and uh, looking at different elements, particularly linked to human health, but also there was a fabulous story in that series about biomining um, and the use of bacteria to um, break down metals in tailings piles in, in at mines. You know, I'm going back quite some time here. I'm struggling slightly to remember. But, you know, bacteria can be used in all sorts of ways to our benefit. And you're right. You know, they are. The more we find out about bacteria, the more more significant they are. So I don't know a huge amount about it. And I wouldn't want to ever give over the impression that, oh, yeah, bacteria can do anything. They'll be the magic that will solve us, you know, that solve the climate crisis. But it's it's likely that our understanding of them it w- will shape how we how we interact with the planet and how we manage it in the future. I mean, this is my chance, Bruce, to throw the question back at you waste management. To what extent are bacteria important in that? I mean,
0: we don't, same answer, we don't know yet, but I think it's actually, you know, fascinating that we've spent so long trying to explore other worlds. We don't know, we don't know anything about the the, the depths of the oceans. We don't actually know that much about the earth we live on. And then it's the same for microbiology, microorganisms, so many things that we could learn there and increasing where we, we're finding out more and more. And as a female scientist, are we making progress with gender balance in science? You know, or is this imbalance causing delays in solutions and communications? I mean, Vandana Shiva, the Indian eco-activist, she says uniformity is not nature's way. Diversity is nature's way. So are we, are we, have we got enough diversity in science and planetary science?
1: Well... I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. You know, we do need diversity, diversity of thinking, diversity of voices, and and gender is one of the most obvious, I suppose. I think progress has been made enormously, but at, say, university level. I think gender... Gender balances are probably pretty good across undergraduate cohorts. That's what I like to think. I don't have the statistics, but I think progress has really been made. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily following through into professorial positions, boardroom positions, that sort of thing. So, so I think we must not must not relax on that front. But I would like to think that progress is is being made, particularly in how we're engaging young people. Um, I think gender is becoming less of a problem there I mean maybe that's just my own experience at dynamic earth I I I don't know um but certainly other forms of diversity again I like to think um there's a lot of focus on it whether that's actually translating into any change I don't know but for so many organizations in, in the engagement sector you know we are very focused and mindful of um, accessibility and diversity and inclusion. So I think it's being talked about more. So you've got to hope that the next step is actually results and outcome on that basis. But I, yeah. I don't know, Good. is the short answer.
0: In your view, what is the best book ever written? about the planet about the earth and it can be a very geeky geomorphology book if you if you if you wish
1: (laughs) a book that i very much enjoyed recently was called the rise and reign of the mammals by a paleontologist called steve brusatti now that's a a really exciting look it's basically a paleontology book but it makes you reflect as a human being sort of how mammals have come to dominate the planet and our place in that you know that that was that was really made me think other books that I've really enjoyed, The Invention of Nature, by Ali. Have you read that no. about uh, Humboldt, um, Andrea Wolf? Fantastic book. Um, these are not, I suppose, books about the climate crisis in itself. I actually, I did enjoy Bill Gates's book about addressing a climate crisis. I thought that was very practical, very tangible. I'm not going to say one book, Bruce. I don't this care. is
0: good. This is turning into a buck club, so it's fine. Yeah, we've, got, well- we've got a few <laughs> titles there for people to get to. And I, I've escaped you asking me as well, so that's a, that's a success. And so... On Hermione's sort of career, um, we're, all, we're all very young and early in our careers still. What's success look like for you?
1: I think if thinking kind of, kind of quite sort of academically, I, I think I would love to see science viewed as part of our culture. You know, I think science is part of our culture. And yet too often, when people say the word culture, they think of like museums and historical heritage, things like that. I I would say, you know, places like Dynamic Earth are cultural institutions and should be be considered as such, funded as such, um, and embraced as such. You know, I think we have so much to offer. I think you know net zero is a public engagement issue um, and we need to kind of really embrace science engagement to deliver that and deliver the sustainable development goals so i think a shift in public perception as to what is science and how does it mean to them to be part of that i'm not going to do that on my own bruce (laughs) um this podcast is helping um At Dynamic Earth, I've still got a few years left, I think, where I really want to see impact and changes and um, just making sure it thrives, really. It's it's doing important work uh, that I really feel is valuable. I've got a fantastic team. So I think uh, carrying on there and, yes, more visitors, more funding, better engagement.
0: And it's really interesting when you said that about science being part of the culture because the Dynamic Earth, great name. As soon as you said it, I just thought, why do we call it the Science Museum in London? I mean, it's like so backward looking. It's, sort of like it's already done. It's like a museum. Why would you go to a science museum? It's sort of like double whammy of being bored, isn't it? If you're thinking about
1: it. <laughs> Slightly And that, that. So there's a perception issue. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, You know, formal education has got a big job to do. <laughs>
0: On this show, we're building a Hall of Fame for climate heroes. And we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So what or who would it be?
1: This is the Desert Island Discs moment, isn't it, Bruce? And I knew it was coming and I still haven't come up with a good answer. I mean, you know, I've sort of all sorts of things to say. And this is going to be cheesy, but it's our little shared history. It's geography teachers. You know, I think they do a really good job and we need good, inspiring teachers for our our young people. And geography uniquely sits at that nexus that we, we touched on. You know, it's about people. It's about the planet. So there you go. Geography teachers are going into the Hall of Fame for me.
0: I love that. We love our geography teachers. Absolutely fantastic. So I love geography teachers in the Hall of Fame. That is fantastic. I don't think it's cheesy at all. So that's brilliant. Hermione, it's been absolutely amazing having you on the show. Um, before we head out, um, you can plug Dynamic Earth one more time. How do people find it? What's the website?
1: We are www.dynamicearth.co.uk and we are. Situated in Edinburgh, we're open most of the year, we have a wonderful public programme throughout the year, so look us up and come and see us. And honestly, any listeners to this podcast are very welcome to drop me a line if they're coming to Edinburgh.
0: Excellent, perfect. (laughs) And if you go to Edinburgh, you can't uh, avoid some fantastic geomorphology as well as a superb... Um, Science Centre so it's the place to go a great city. Hermione thanks so much for being on First Miles Climate Heroes.
1: Thank you Bruce
0: I'm Bruce Bratley and you've been listening to First Miles Climate Heroes where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change. If you've enjoyed this episode leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday